you're going to face all of this change. You have to be prepared. You change jobs. Uh, the average person now will work for uh, eight to ten companies, and in each one of those, uh, it's not about what necessarily the hard skills only that you bring. It's your ability to leverage those hard skills in a different environment and be successful. Welcome to the Darden Leadership Speaker Series. This episode features UPS Chief Strategy and Transformation Officer Scott Price delivering a keynote at the Darden School of Business. In this podcast, he will discuss how to influence and create transformation from within a global corporation. In December of 2017, I joined, uh, I joined the company as, uh, as the Chief Strategy and Transformation. Um, I was actually the first external hire uh, to the company in its 112-year history uh, at an executive level. Um, it is a company that has uh, been very, very focused upon uh, promoting from within. So uh, I, was, I was the grand social experiment. Uh, even, even our chairman and CEO, uh, David Abney, who is my boss, um, he started in Mississippi um, as, a, uh, as a preloader uh, while he was in early days of college. And uh, he recently just celebrated his 45th year with the company. Um, so I brought down the average age by about three days uh, <laughs> when I joined. Um, so I'm an outsider to the company, um, and uh, a company that has uh, deeply ingrained cultural norms. Uh, and I, I jokingly say that, it, to me, it's a bit like whale whistles. You, you, know, you know there's intelligent communication going on, but damned if you can figure out what it means, uh, which is a real challenge uh, as you think about how you uh, go into organizations or countries or cultures, et cetera, and, and earn the right to make change. And, and that's really uh, the theme of, of what I wanted to speak about uh, today. So I joined a company of 481,000 people uh, around the, the world to reset um, how, uh, how the, the corporation moved forward. Um, and uh, in a normal public corporation, um, bringing along our board of directors uh, and uh, a number of stakeholders. Um, and the process is around uh, in essence, um, just rethinking about what was going to change our industry uh, and the pace of transformation and disruption that is uh, occurring out there. Uh, and I'll talk a little, bit, uh, a little bit about that. So here I walk into this company that has a very, um, not um, suspicion, but uh, a confidence of the internal capability. And this outsider comes in uh, with all these cheery ideas uh, learned through years of experience, all based upon the core of a Darden education. Um, so the key of all of this is that, you know, my job was to come in and to help facilitate a process. I don't want to give the impression by any means that uh, I single-handedly did this. We have a management committee. Uh, I was the first. Uh, we followed with a few more uh, individuals uh, about uh, a year later um, that is setting about revamping how a company like SR Scale uh, adapts to the speed of change that's occurring these days. Um, it's been... Uh, it's been incredibly rewarding, uh, and I've, uh, I've enjoyed it. So um, I, I picked this photograph on purpose um, because um, I, I, this, is, this was probably uh, the last uh, literal black eye that I had in my life. Um, but through this journey of the last 30 years since I graduated, there were a lot of figurative black eyes uh, in that process uh, that uh, I'll tell you a little bit about. So it all started at Darden, 1987. Uh, I'm not sure I would get into the school today. I had a very non-traditional background. Um, and I was very fortunate to be uh, admitted into the joint degree program that Venkat uh, 
mention, I chose the Japan path. It was 1987. Look, they were going to buy the world. It didn't work out so well, but uh, at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do. Um, the program, I had no money, was scholarship-based. Uh, and even today, I remember lining up in Barbara Millar's office to get my check. Uh, that helped me continue to study and eat. Um, and um, despite sort of uh, uh, all of my effort of those three years of this program, uh, studying including six months um, in Tokyo, uh, studying the language, doing my thesis research for the second degree, uh, and uh, as well working at the Japanese government, um, there was not a single American company that uh, would give me a job uh, that was back in Tokyo. I was determined to go back to Tokyo. Um, you know, this is my picture of me getting my 127th ding letter um, of trying to just get a job. Um, and so determined to do it and make it happen. Um, so uh, I, uh, I sold all my meager belongings, uh, meager, um, to the a bunch of international guys who were coming in to start in the fall and uh, they, uh, they needed uh, some furniture. And I never really ever met them. I never know how disappointed they were when they arrived. but. Uh, <laughs> So I bought the cheapest ticket I could get, went through Hong Kong and uh, arrived in Tokyo um, looking for a job and Darden had my back once again. Uh, through the LUM network, um, I, uh, I met uh, somebody who had just arrived as an expat, didn't speak the language. It was a very Japanese company, uh, Coca-Cola Japan, and he gave me my first job as a local. Uh, started July the 4th, 1990. Uh, they sat me uh, in a traditional Japanese environment uh, next to a really cute girl I've been married to for 28 years. Um, you're not allowed to do that anymore, by the way, just, to, just in case you know. Um, and so I was learning a business. I was learning my way as a Darden grad. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes in those early days. And for some reason, you get an MBA, suddenly you think you, you're smart. Um, and I'm not sure that that's always wise. Uh, humility would help. Uh, I certainly probably had very little of that, but should have. Um, but I did well enough over several years that, uh, that Coke then sent me to Australia um, as an expatriate in Sydney. Um, learned in a completely different environment. Even though it's the same company, Australians themselves are very unique people. Uh, and trying to understand how do I do my job, I was this foreigner sent in as a bit of an expat. You know, they give you a lovely apartment look, overlooking Sydney Harbor and already therefore you've pissed off all the Australians who can't, uh, and yeah, I didn't know that, but uh, suddenly they thought you're all uppity, et cetera. Um, but, but the culture of working and how you succeed in Australia, wildly different uh, than Japan. Uh, they then sent me back to Tokyo where I, they had, Coke Japan had acquired a very traditional Japanese company and they wanted me to go in and be the COO. And it was the first fully Japanese environment in which I had to operate. Um, and so it was really complicated. Um, I probably slightly exaggerated my Japanese skills and then they multiplied that uh, to their view as to what my capability was. So it was a little bit rough initially. Um, but it was a turnaround and, and did well enough that uh, they sent me to uh, become country president of, of Malaysia, based in uh, Kuala Lumpur. Um, it's a very interesting country. It's made up of three groups, ethnic Malays, the Chinese, the Indians, each with quite unique cultures. And so I thought I was getting into kind of a stable environment uh, to uh, take my first really big leadership job. Um, and so I, I had, uh, I, I, sorry, arrived in April and then smooth 30, 90 days, and then uh, July 1997, the Asian financial crisis, crisis hit. Um, trillions of dollar of value disappeared overnight. I mean, it was literally uh, in a matter of, of weeks. 
um, all very much based upon currency. And, and what ended up happening was that companies that were reliant upon importing and exporting were hit by far the hardest. Uh, and uh, of course, a company that imported a secret formula denominated in US dollars had a bit of a hard time. Uh, and so it was really my first experience at a transformation in a foreign country. Um, so uh, I was there for three years, um, and then Koch asked me to go to China. Uh, I was based in Hong Kong, and so those of you who watch the no news know that although uh, Hong Kong are ethnically Chinese, they're very, very different uh, as a people in terms of the culture, uh, very different goals than mainland China, uh, which is causing some conflict today. So it's a tricky environment uh, in which to navigate. Um, after 12 years at Coke, um, I was given a, a chance to learn a new industry. I wanted a new challenge. Uh, and so uh, I went to, uh, back to Tokyo as the country president uh, for DHL, a logistics company, um, which at the time was an entrepreneurial, mainly by sort of Australian and New Zealanders. Um, and about four months after I joined, it was acquired by Deutsche Post, the traditional German post. Um, and so I had this entrepreneurial environment that in, in sort of um, uh, attracted me a Germanic, we will now bring process and control in a turnaround environment. Um, and trying to navigate that um, and not get sort of shot was uh, challenging. Uh, and uh, it, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a huge challenge. Um, but it well, went well enough that um, I was promoted to become CEO of DHL Asia based in Singapore. Um, responsible for all 42 countries uh, in the region, um, from Pakistan in the west all the way to Mongolia in sort of the, the, the northeast, all the way down to the, the, the southern uh, Pacific Islands, uh, Australia, and New Zealand. So I spent a lot of time on planes. That was my first 1 million mile, no, 880,000 miles in one year, because uh, I also had to go to Germany uh, every month uh, to report on how things were going, which was a lot of fun. Um, I enjoyed the job, uh, the, t the travel was tough, but learning all of these cultures and how wildly different to be able to make progress and to grow these businesses, um, trying to keep the theme of a corporate culture but at the same time respecting the national cultures uh, was, a, was an interesting, uh, interesting challenge. Um, I was then uh, asked to become the CEO of DHL Europe. Uh, based in Brussels, um, responsible for 44 of the countries in, in Europe, including Germany, which was a mix of the DHL business and the German post. Um, I learned a German, the only German I speak is, you know, das ist verboten. That's not allowed uh, for those uh, who speak German. Um, I heard it a lot uh, because of uh, some of the transformational things uh, that weren't working in, a, in, a, in an environment of a traditional uh, of traditional um, German post. So again, it was a huge challenge of managing all these different perspectives, both in terms of the, the national cultures that existed. Um, and so just as I was sort of getting myself a little bit um, settled, uh, I had a great opportunity to learn a new industry. Um, and so I moved to Hong Kong as the CEO of uh, Walmart Asia, um, leading their retail business. Uh, so about a thousand stores uh, across the region. Um, did that for five years, um, and all varying levels, and interacted with several of the, of our, of the professors here in the room during that time. Uh, China or India, Japan are the big countries. Uh, went through all matter of various and sundry. Uh, I could be here for hours with some of the funky stories during that period of time. It was very exciting, but after five years with, uh, with both uh, our daughters, 
um, in college in the United States, one at University of Miami, and my youngest daughter uh, started here at UVA. Uh, it was just too far away. Um, so uh, Walmart asked me to move to uh, um, Walmart in Arkansas, probably the biggest culture shock of all those moves. Um, <laughs> working on transformational initiatives in a company that is quite traditional, um, is, um, is quite um, um, stable in its ways. And so here in Asia, I'd had all this flexibility to make change as I thought um, with not a lot of oversight. Uh, and then went into the corporation, was asked to make change um, and across the entire corporation, including uh, people who didn't think I have a, a right to be there. Um, so I, uh, I then, uh, from there, had an opportunity uh, to go and join uh, UPS two years ago. So, you know, I'm asked a lot, you know, how do you, how do you adapt to be able to s take on these roles? And, and, and how, do you, how do you have an opportunity to, to earn the right to transform? Um, because I, I've experienced hundreds of iterations of corporate and, and, and national cultures um, through, through my, my 30 years of working that have, have taught me some lessons. Um, and so I'm really just here to, to share sort of the, the, the quickly whenever I get into these environments, the, the three questions that I ask myself, um, that once I quickly figure out the answer to it, helps me navigate uh, and in lead. Um, so, so there's three questions. Um, so the first is, um, you know, uh, humans are tribal, absolutely tribal. I don't care where you are in the world, humans are tribal. Um, and you're met with varying levels of openness depending upon what that tribe happens to be, whether it be corporate, whether it be national. And I, I've been in situations that have been quite open, a bit of a filter, and I've been where I've been openly told, you don't belong here. Uh, I remember that day. That was one of those, uh, one of those um, black eyes. Um, so how do you go into those environments and create the right to, to, to have a voice to, to change? So. So the first is how do you influence people? And, and these, all, these, all these answers have to come through quickly observing in environments and having an antenna to look around. So when you talk about how you influence people, um, you know, in many countries outside the U US, um, there's, for example, an ingrained hierarchical based on age and respect. And so I've been in environments where I'm the boss, but everyone's older than me. And you have to be deferential, but yet the boss. And it's a really hard construct. Because if you're not, they'll simply ignore you. So if you want to influence those people, you have to follow that norm, which is a little bit tricky. I've been in the opposite extreme that any sign of, any, any sign of weakness versus an aggressive approach of being directive, and no one will follow you. Um, and you know, there've been times I've had both of those in two days, uh, which is a real challenge. Um, those are national cultures, corporate cultures are different. Uh, I've been in a corporate culture where aggressiveness was rewarded in terms of you're moving it forward and sort of you know, how you went about doing it aggressively. I've been in the opposite of sort of servant le leadership where you know, if you do it in a way that makes someone else feel like you're attacking them, then you have failed and you do not have the right to, to influence. Uh, uh, and so that is a, quite a, an, an extreme, and you have to be very clear as you think, how are individuals appearing to, to influence? Um, the second is how does conflict get resolved in the organization? Um, boy, uh, have I seen all manners of it. Um, I started my career in Japan. Jap Japanese are an incredibly 
um, calm and respectful. They avoid conflict. It's around social harmony. Um, but there's this phrase called gamon that I, I didn't understand. And it's, I will be patient, 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 patient till you've pushed just to a point a little bit far. Then socially, it's okay for me to explode in your collateral damage. <laughs> One of those figurative black eyes, I remember that. And so here you have this conflict resolution that actually blows up on you and uh, you had to be prepared. And so that was one extreme in terms of the conflict. Um, I've been in sort of a culture where conflict is a daily environment um, where, you know, it's, it feels to me like, you know, the culture, people like yelling at each other and fighting and it's a, just a very aggressive environment, et cetera. It may not be real conflict, but it feels like conflict. And so trying to then figure out how you behave in that environment uh, is really challenging. And then I find in most companies, in addition to the corporate culture within the national, then you've got different personalities. Um, so as you go through that process, being clear, not only does how does conflict get resolved, but how do you then, then operate in that environment? And then the third is, how do people create change? Um, and this is a deeply important question in this day and age, um, with the exponential changes that are occurring through technology everywhere. Uh, and companies that are not able to find people who can create change um, are challenged. And so, you know, as you think about creating change in the role of the boss or the role of the board or the role of your executive committee, et cetera, how do people create the environment and are successful in creating change? You know, is it an environment where, you know, you basically, it's a logic reasoned white paper to a boss who weighs in in a very calm way. Uh, is it, you know, creating sort of a socialization through all levels and then you get it up and that's presented as a fait accompli to the boss that's fully aligned? Do you agitate the boss until they explode and they demand the change and then you make the progress? Uh, I've been in all of those environments uh, and each one is uniquely different in terms of how you, how you na navigate them. Um, finding out which one of those works is critical, um, again, as you think through those three changes. So I, ans I have probably 10 years ago felt um, I informalized these three, um, and it was an important part of me, I think, uh, one succeeding in, in, in Asia with Walmart and creating that headquarter experience and then moving to UPS is that as I got into the job and I very quickly understood the, how was I seeing those three particular questions getting answered? It helped me understand then how to operate and how to create personal relationships. So let me then talk about what all that meant as I walked into this great job that I have now. So UPS, uh, as I mentioned, it's 112 year old. It's, uh, it started in 1907 as a messenger company, two, two, teenage, two teenage boys, one bicycle and $100 they borrowed. Uh, and that was the, the beginning of this company. We've gone a long way from those very humble beginnings uh, over the last 112 years. Uh, today we are the largest logistics company in the world. Uh, we move 6% of the US GDP every single day. We move 3% of the global GDP every single day. Uh, so quite, quite a modest, from a modest bicycle to, uh, to that uh, is pretty impressive. <clears throat> We've been at the center of logistics for the, for the last century. Um, but it required at multiple points in the company's history to reinvent itself, to transform itself. Uh, and so this is not the, the, the first transformation, it's the first transformation guided by an outsider. Um, so what's happening, what's driving that? Well, we are in the very 
sort of beginning to middle of the fourth industrial revolution, and I'll talk about what that means for all companies in just a moment. So with the disruptions that are happening, every single organization's supply chains and logistics are being disrupted, and they're being forced to reinvent them at a speed never before where gig startups can scale so quickly now that large-scale companies are being disrupted by companies that have not been around for even that long. They may be well-funded, but they have access through platforms, et cetera, to be able to, to disrupt. So if you think now about that level of disruption, yeah, let's talk about this, the, the cell phone. So in 1992, there's probably no one here other than the professors who can even relate to this. I remember when I got my first phone, cell phone. I felt very important that day. Um, in 1992, when the cell phone came, UPS, we were part of that. Um, it was manufactured with parts from Korea in the UK and Finland. And that was a really big deal, coordinating that, right? So the iPhone, which just celebrated its 10th anniversary, boggles the mind, 10 years of a smartphone, um, it, 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 it is, it is um, 700 parts in an iPhone um, that are coming from five continents um, and 30 different, 30, 30 plus countries. That is now the complexity of the supply chain that creates the iPhone that sits in, in, your, in your pocket today. And so the complexity of the supply chain, the logistics, and then there's this little tiff between a couple of countries and suddenly you have parts of China looking to see where they need to move manufacturing. So we're constantly having to redesign. Uh, and so the capabilities that are having uh, to be developed to move quickly in this world are, are, pretty, uh, are pretty significant. And, and frankly, in this borderless world, uh, the implications uh, are harsh. So, you know, it's a little bit of a history lesson. Um, I'm gonna make a point uh, uh, about the speed and what that means in terms of transformation and how you adapt in those cultures. Um, so, to refresh your memory, no one here was there. Um, first Industrial Revolution, um, water steam to mechanize uh, manufacturing and the growth of industries like textiles, et cetera. You remember the Luddites are the ones who went and kind of destroyed the textile machines because they were doing There was 100 years between the first and the second Industrial Revolution, which was around basically electric power to create mass transit uh, production, et cetera. There was another 100 years between the second and the third Industrial Revolution. So the third Industrial Revolution started uh, roughly about 50 years ago, um, and it was the beginning of digital. It was the world whereby you started to see some basic levels of robotics uh, and automating production. Um, the fourth industrial revolution is starting now. It is believed that this revolution will last 10 years before the fifth industrial revolution. This revolution for the next 10 years is around the physical, the digital, and the biological coming together in a way that is significantly changing the way we operate. You, words that you all know, so artificial intelligence, robotics, the internet of things, autonomous vehicles, 3D printing, nanotechnology, biotechnology, material sciences. You have these hugely disruptive, technologically driven aspects of each industry coming in to what is being called the fourth industrial revolution. 10 years from now, the fifth revolution will be upon us, speculated when AI really truly becomes an important part of how our businesses and our lives uh, will be affected. So what did that mean for the largest logistics in the, company, in the world? Uh, we were blithely, successfully moving on uh, in the beginning of this fourth industrial revolution. So I missed the fourth, didn't I? 
Oh, I'm going the wrong way. I'm sorry. Here we go. You'd think I'd learn how to use these things after all these years. So what does it mean for us? So where have we been completely disrupted? The first is e-commerce. Um, the shift in e-commerce is just extraordinary relative to, to, to our world. We started as a B2B business that, for the most part, picked up a business and delivered it a business. 80% of the growth in logistics in the next decade will be delivering parcels, single parcels, to people's homes. Um, it is a massive, massive impact. Interesting, a bit of the theme of the topic when I come back in February of next year at the climate change, which is, okay, we're kind of creating a problem here, guys. Uh, what are we going to do about it? Um, another major is localization and 3D printing. Um, we have a, a significant ownership in a 3D printing company. It, it, you just go to the factories that they're creating and it blows your mind. Um, there are tens of millions of parts that sit in warehouses around the United States. And we're, part, we're participating in digitalizing those. And we are putting this factory next to our Louisville port and we will have access to a billion parts that only get printed, and it can do all materials, including metals now, with quality, with the tensile durability that passes, in particular for aircraft, et cetera, um, as those that are, are traditionally molded. Um, that is completely changing and disrupting uh, the world of spare parts. Um, so uh, the final is, is the whole area of mobility. Uh, drones, robotics, automation, so UPS, four weeks and three days ago, became the first FAA-certified drone airline in the United States uh, and uh, an important part of our progress. It was, it was fun to be part of that. Uh, we are the first um, uh, operator to move for money, uh, meaning a commercial transaction product. Um, we are quickly moving to move prescriptions uh, from a CVS store to people's homes in the early days of this entire process. So you think about movement of goods, uh, and today, you know, the on-demand world, um, to drones uh, and uh, robotics uh, and how we move forward is, is, is critical. So that's a bit of the background. So I, I understood how to learn a culture, um, how to start to learn change. Um, I quickly understood some of these major issues as we, we looked at our strategy and these disruptions. Um, but as you can expect in that environment, um, my, uh, my appointment surprised a lot of people um, within the company. Not good surprise. Uh, and so that was quite a bit of the challenge, um, is the, the right to have an opinion, um, to see these things and talk through them, again, with support of the management committee. Um, but it was an incredible opportunity to be part of a, a great brand, a great company, and, and someone I'm working for uh, that uh, made me feel very comfortable there. So our, co our company's transformation as we go through this process um, covers uh, three areas um, that I've noted up here uh, on the board. Um, so w w the first is, is clearly around productivity. Um, we have to be a low-cost player. We are, we are going to be disrupted if we are not a low-cost player. So we are investing very, very heavily in technology whether it be robotics, the drones, all of those ways to reduce uh, our, our, our costs through efficiency, et cetera. Um, in terms of growth, we are getting aggressively into healthcare. Um, we are creating um, mechanisms by which working with healthcare companies, health home care providers are able to meet our packages uh, with uh, several minute uh, differences to be able to provide services uh, in home. Uh, we're creating the ability to move products within labs by drones, et cetera. 
Uh, and finally, uh, culture is part of our transformation. It seems maybe not necessarily intuitive that you would transform your culture and your talent base. But the reality is the skills that are going to be needed in the future are very different than the skills today. Uh, you hear a lot of the talk about the jobs that are being destroyed by technology. As a country, we have a serious gap in the number of FAA certified drone operators, drone <coughs> maintenance. Um, and we've been talking to, to technical colleges about the fact that they need to train. Um, our first air flight that uh, the FAA certified happened to be a, an all-female crew, our chief, uh, our chief operator, our, our flight operator, and our, our maintenance. All three of these women we hired out of, uh, out of the Navy's uh, 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 drone program. Um, but you can't have the military training, everybody. Tens of thousands of, of, of trained, certified people are required. Uh, and that's very much around the skills of the future that are required. Um, so anyway, I could spend a whole day on, on these three slides. Uh, it's, uh, I get quite excited about these things. Um, so these are the, sort of the driver. Um, so as this world continues on to this world of continuous transformation, um, this is a picture of our founder, uh, Jim Casey, um, who started the culture of the company. Um, and you know, he has very much you know, the values and the behaviors that went that shaped that culture. Uh, that we try to maintain today, but we're having to change it. Um, we're, we're having to redefine the behaviors that go through some of those values. Striving for excellence in a stable environment is wildly different than what striving for excellence in the behaviors what that looks like in a transformational uh, or a disruptive environment. Uh, and so uh, we call it constructively dissatisfied. Um, there was a class that, uh, that uh, was taught here. I, it was called at the time organizational behavior. I think it's called leadership uh, organization or LO, somebody told me it's called today. Wow, I really wish I had paid attention. <laughs> I had no idea um, that that aspect of working in a continuous transformation culture so much was dependent. The hard skills is what that many, I think, focus on. Um, but it's the ability to go through the process that I mentioned, those three questions, and then transform through people. Um, you can't muscle through it on your own. It, it is that organizational aspect uh, of how you get people to, to believe in and follow what you're proposing. Um, so as continuous transformation um, embeds, and becomes uh, uh, basically an imperative for every business. I meet a lot of business leaders, both large and small. Everyone is being disrupted. There's no one who's sitting back and predicting that the next five years are gonna be stable for them. They're all looking for new skill sets. So there's this need for this new and diverse and innovative creative thinking that's required. Um, so for the students in the room, and, and I get asked quite, quite often um, to students, you know, what, what advice do I give them? Um, so, one, so you're signing up to being in constant transformation yourself. Um, and it means that you know, as you progress through your career, there will be several times. Uh, if I look at my career, um, I'd say there are probably four or five really major pivots. Uh, I would suggest that the average MBA student graduating today could have eight to 10. Um, they're very much driven around the shift away from the skills. So this was a, a Financial Times um, work that was done around what are the skills uh, for MBAs um, recently. And, and they talked about the shift away from what businesses need versus what they saw as what they were getting. Um, so you see it here, the specialized marketing skills, um, the complex statistics, very much hard skills 
um, are what are felt to be trained, but they're less important um, than in what is becoming the critical needs uh, in terms of what businesses who are faced with this issue of continuous transformation require. Um, and ability to work with people, um, time management, understanding the digital impact on business. And, and I'm, I'm constantly beating this drum that as business people, if you do not understand technology well enough to challenge your CIO, your CTO, your advanced technology people, they will run circles around you and you are going to waste money and you're going to make some wrong decisions. So every business person, it doesn't matter where you are in the organization, read Wired Magazine for God's sake. Sign up to some daily tech because if you're not able to be tech-oriented and tech-savvy, you're really going to struggle to stay relevant moving forward. Relying on those skills, of course, are not enough. Um, as a Darden student, you're going to have a lot of opportunities to learn as you go around the world. Um, you know, it, it, to me, managing your career, um, and I get asked about this all the time, you know, how did you create the career? I didn't really create the career. Um, Darden set me up for success. I wouldn't be here today if it was not for Darden. Uh, I wouldn't be here today if it hadn't been um, in getting into that, that, uh, that joint degree program. I wanted to see the world. It would have never happened without this school. Uh, and so it's a great base, uh, and I am a very firm believer in this, in this school, in the program, and the approach that it takes. Um, but change is inevitable, and so for all uh, new grads or existing, I get asked by officers of the company who want to continue to progress their career, you know, what do I need to do? Um, you have to create that environment of transformation, and when you are put into a new situation, Again, being very clear, um, you know, how do you influence people? It's the hows on each one of these. Observing very quickly uh, as you go through the process. So I've spent my entire career adapting to new cultures. Um, I may be a masochist, I don't know. Um, it, it, it just, it kept, me, it kept me intrigued, it kept me interested, uh, and I enjoyed the challenge. Um, and ultimately, it allowed me to create the the skill set to be able to earn the right to, to transform a company uh, and be part of transformation. I don't singularly do it, but, but play a role in the process. So um, for anyone, as they graduate and they go out into now what will be a soon the fifth generation, the first, first for the fifth industrial revolution, um, you're going to face all of this change. You have to be prepared. You change jobs. Uh, the average person now will work for uh, eight to ten companies, and in each one of those, Uh, It's not about what necessarily the hard skills only that you bring. It's your ability to leverage those hard skills in a different environment and be successful, uh, which means that you have to very much understand those uh, those cultures. So my last slide, Darden. I this uh, I I I'm very I have a very uh, soft part. uh, Sorry, soft spot uh, in my heart. Um, um, I had when I left Darden 30 years ago. I had no idea what was in store for me. Um, I had this dream and this uh, idea, this freshly minted. Uh, so, you know, for me, uh, it helped me meet my wife, um, raised two incredible daughters uh, who live and work in New York. I, I've had opportunity to meet heads of state. Um, I had great adventures in really cool countries. Uh, I met legends, that's Henry Kissinger, uh, saw the sights of 82 countries, uh, represented my company at the White House, um, and enjoyed every moment of it. Thank you. anyone has a question, uh, if you would use the mic, um, raise your hand, and we'll walk, walk a mic to you. 
thanks for coming out. That was a really great talk. Um, in your perspective, do you expect that these long, complicated supply chains have developed in the last decade or so are going to start contracting given technological change like 3D printing that supports local production or political risk with the current trend towards trade barriers? Yeah, I would split that between production versus um, last mile. Um, I think what we're going to see in the world is we're going to go back to regionalization. Um, so if you think about e-commerce and platforms, the reality is the cost of the movement and now this world that we live in of tariffs, um, I think you're going to see an Asia block, an, a European block, a North American, a South American. I think the long supply chains in terms of the end production are going to shrink and go back to regionalization. In terms of the supply chain related to raw materials, there are natural competitive benefits that exist. If you look at the, the raw material, the raw, uh, raw earth, sorry, the rare earth materials um, in China, they exist everywhere, but China has gotten way ahead of everyone else uh, in the ability to, to at scale, um, resource them. Um, so that is still gonna be a very long part of a lot of supply chains for a lot of companies. Um, so I think on raw material, you'll continue to see maybe longer ones, but absolutely, you'll start to see a bit of contraction, uh, I think, over the next many years. And we certainly are seeing it today, even though, uh, and um, we talk about this a bit, trade is down with China. We see it. But trade between China and the rest of Asia, way up. And so they're offsetting it. Now, not completely offsetting it, so there's, there's a loser-loser environment going on right now. Um, but for the most part, uh, you're seeing more of a regionalization of trade between China and other Asian countries. I, uh, thank you again for being with us. Uh, on the cultural change question, that's a very tough problem, right? It's a, it's a non-trivial problem. What, what's the practical programming you do at UPS to actually make that happen? Because it's not merely a technology problem. It's not, it's not an operational problem. It's a, it's a people problem and how they think about that and how they think about their work. Yeah, and so, you know, the... For a large-scale company like, like UPS, and it, it would be the same for the other corporations that I've worked at that are large-scale and global, there's a huge difference between the headquarters and the rest of the world. Uh, and that is actually the biggest challenge relative to, to how you manage a culture and how you create a change in the culture. Because, you know, you can convince yourself in the headquarters that you've changed the culture. You know, if you've not brought along the other 90% of the people, then you really haven't achieved what you're setting out to do. Um, so we've worked a lot on communication, um, and it's, uh, we're using a lot of digital platforms. We're doing a lot of video vignettes, three to four minute video vignettes. Um, we then try and get those out on a regular basis to try and explain the journey we're on. But communication is actually the biggest part of a transformational program that, that picks up speed. Uh, and without it, you in essence just have a small group of people who think they're making progress, and they're not. If you don't get it down to the front line, you're just simply not going to make progress. Of course, you had to sit all the way at the back. Thank you. Uh, I feel like we got a bit of a sanitized version of your story, and I'd love to hear more about the black eyes. Uh, especially times when you felt really like you were, you know, punched in the gut, and you got back from that. Oh. <laughs> so the worst ones I blocked through therapy. 
You know, I got a black eye in just about every one of those environments. Um, you know, the Australian version was probably the most um, challenging because it's a country where um, it's this odd mix of humility and aggressiveness. And I just couldn't, I was tone deaf. I, I couldn't understand this sort of like this sort of, you know, they call it taking the piss out of each other, right? But at the same time, you know, if you tried to have an opinion, you know, they turned on you. And it was, a, it was a strange culture. And so I got a number of black eyes where I was there to try and be helpful. Um, but yet I said the wrong thing at the wrong time in an event and was basically seen as, as, uh, as being um, um, undeserving of, of some of the things that I was saying. Um, Non-native English countries are probably where I got black eyes but didn't know it. Um, and so I speak Japanese, so of course I'm always clear when I've been delivered a black eye in, in Japan. But I had many interactions in China where I think I got a black eye, um, but I think through politeness, whatever. Um, and had some very strange situations in China. 25 people that were part of my responsibility were arrested and put in jail. And I mean, the whole thing uh, with Bo Lai, who was at that time positioning himself against Xi Jinping, and it felt very uncomfortable to try and be in the middle of it. Um, we ended up okay, but in that process, it felt like I got about four black eyes. Uh, and then in terms of companies, um, not adapting quickly enough to the culture, um, and a misstep here and there where something that worked in, an either, in a previous company didn't work in the current company. So at UPS, I probably had a couple of figurative black eyes in the process of, of not reading the culture, uh, which is very deep, deeply ingrained, and as well honored. Uh, that is both good and bad uh, in terms of uh, adaptability and openness to change. Oh, and then I could bring in my wife and daughters. That's like another set of stories. <laughs> you want to have a black eye, have a couple teenage girls. <laughs> but I survived, and they'll still talk to me, so I take that as a good sign. With, in, in the e-commerce space, with Amazon kind of acting as both a customer and a competitor to UPS, how easy is, is it for you to capacity plan in that, uh, with them is, and broader e-commerce? Is it you can see where they're going with, their, with how they're ramping up their logistics, or is it kind of, do they come at you as kind of a surprise at times? You want a job? <laughs> So, so there's, there's two aspects of that. First, and we say it often, you know, e-com is more than just Amazon. Um, you know, Amazon is roughly 30% of e-commerce, but of course it's capturing half the growth, so at some point those dynamics change. So, so the two aspects are first the surge, driven by all of you, four weeks out of the year. Um, our volume runs roughly 20 million shipments a day in the United States. The last four weeks, we have days at 38 million. And you simply can't build the church for Easter Sunday, so you have to manage through flow control and time of day, et cetera, to try and not explode your, your sword equipment and your airline, et cetera, to be able to handle that. Amazon actually is a great, is a great partner in that process because where it helps is when the upstream has enormous technology and analytic capability to tell you not, not only where's it coming from, but where's it going to. Now we're being stressed by their move of Prime from two days to one day. So pre, prior to this, after your order, we would get 36 hours roughly notification. We now have 18 hours. 
Uh, and so matching that capacity with that volume, but again, they're 40%, uh, 30 to 40%. The rest, we don't have necessarily that access of capacity. And so we've had strange blips where suddenly Atlanta turned red because you saw an uptick and we try and root cause later what happened uh, to it. So we have a lot of very sophisticated forecasting models. Um, we run an airline, we have uh, hundreds of thousands of vehicles, we have feeder trucks, we have uh, smaller aircraft, we soon hopefully to have drones. Um, so the, the capacity management has quite a bit of flexibility in it, but the sophistication, and we use a lot of AI to try and predict where the volume will come out, it's a significant challenge uh, as, um, as, as this growth progresses in a non-traditional way. Um, when it was B2B growth, it was a lot more predictable. Um, with B2C, you know, trying to figure out what'll happen on a Black Friday or a Cyber, a cyber Monday is really hard. It's very difficult. Are, are the tariffs a uh, hindrance to your profitability or are they actually helping profitability? You're with the New York Times, aren't you? <laughs> My PR assistant here is saying, don't answer the tariff question, don't answer the tariff question. Um, so I, I'll make a statement and I, I hope it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't sound too overly corporate speak. You know, our country has a history that um, open trade has created jobs. Now, you could take a position as to whether or not it has been disproportionately fair or not fair, and you, know, you can have a room full of people who can debate that. Um, the worst case scenario for our country is there are no winners, and that the cost of winning is greater than the value gained. Um, and that is the concern right now. It hasn't cost our company because it's a flow through. The cost comes in the volume misbalance. Now we can adapt our network. We have a lot of aircraft and so if there's less volume coming out of China to the US, we can move that aircraft and use it somewhere else and we can move it maybe to other parts. So, so we can adapt our network to protect our profitability through moving around our cost structure. But it's the impact of the long-term growth, which I think is the volatility in the stock market, is those multiples have come up and down as everyone tries to figure out what is the economic value that's going to be created over the next several years if this situation does not end in a way that is reliable, that allows capital investment uh, and profit prediction. So it's, it's a complex environment right now. We're, we're, not, we're not pessimistic. We're a little bit even, um, but as we said in our earnings about two weeks ago, we do see warning signs right now that uh, we hope, um, frankly, hoped to have resolved two weeks from now in Santiago, and I, I was supposed to be there as, a, as an APEC member, um, but uh, Pinera has canceled APEC because of uh, all the riots that are occurring. They did a, for background, they did a, sh a little small increase on their subways, and the have and have not populism just exploded, and so they've canceled it for safety, and they've got to find a different place for uh, Xi Jinping and Trump to meet to try and resolve this trade dispute that's going on right now. We're thinking about Macau, so if you like to gamble, go to Macau. So there's a lot of packaging and boxing with uh, the new shipping e-commerce models that have emerged over the past 10 years. How is UPS addressing just the, the increase in waste potentially uh, that has occurred uh, due to the direct delivery models? 
Yeah, it's a big topic, and I had an opportunity to meet with uh, some of the Darden uh, folks who will help uh, on this February uh, um, climate uh, summit that, uh, that will occur here. It's a serious issue because we as a company, are, are we have a very long history uh, of commitment to our role in sustainability. Frankly, the, the, the transportation industry represents 20% of global greenhouse gas. We have a stake in all of this. Uh, we've put a billion dollars in the last 10 years in technology and in, in, in fuel uh, carbon re- uh, reduction opportunity. We now have 10,000 of our vehicles are, are alternate fuel. Uh, and a long list of things that, I, that I'll go into. But the challenge is that that was all based upon previous megatrends that if you said you do all these things, you'll get to zero carbon by 2050. I'm no longer convinced that's true. Moving to the world of eaches, packaged and put on people's front doorsteps. Um, and, and there are ways, I think, to accomplish that. Um, but it means that a curve has to be bent from where we're headed today. And, and we certainly are playing a role in talking about that. But the reality, guys, is every person in this room has a role to play. Now, we're going to try and create opportunities to reduce that through consolidation, get people to try and come to access points so that we can drop higher density. It's maybe slightly less convenient or people to pick a day a week for the deliveries, et cetera. So we're working very hard to do that. But it ultimately comes down to trying to find a way to divert away from this mega trend of convenience. Everyone wants it now uh, and they're impatient. And so that convenience is creating this environment. We have a role to play, um, but it would be like blaming the temperature on the thermometer. Um, every single person has a, has a, has a role in, in raising the temperature, and therefore, collectively, we have to find a solution. Um, the topic is signal versus the noise. With an accelerating world, accelerating data sets, how do you isolate the proper signal from the noise? And then how long does it take before an organization like UPS reacts? Because if you become a follower in this world of disintermediation, you're almost putting yourself into a form of extinction. So the question is, how do you recognize the signal from the noise? Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it is a, a challenge. And by the way, Robert used to, he's a, he was an investment company that used to be retail. He used to show up at these Walmart events and ask the really hard questions you just asked here as well. <laughs> There's an elegance in the continuity that's uh, maybe um, challenging. We'll talk later. But, uh, you know, 481,000 people, 220 countries. We have four business segments in terms of speed and mode of logistics and transportation. We're very clear our strategy. Um, We are clear what the economic model of the future needs to look like. Our challenge is that we are somewhat the pulse of the global economy. And therefore, it is very difficult to understand how to predict what capital you would like to put in now to be able to have capacity in three years. You don't, you don't order an airplane and it shows up the next day. Um, you, don't, you don't convert um, a, a ship contract on the drop of a hat. And so we are constantly balancing between the fixed and the variable capacity uh, as we as we move forward in terms of our cost structure, in terms of our growth, we keep a pulse in a lot of ways, uh, and we have a very regular process by which we come together 
uh, as a leadership team and decide what we see coming in the commitments that we're making. And, you know, we've done better uh, in the last probably year than necessarily our competitors, we think, we certainly don't, uh, we don't want to be seen as arrogant because the minute you think you crack it, reality will come and hit you in the head and hit you hard. So we do have a sort of a sense of insecurity in the sense of how, how confident one can be. But I think for the most part, we've got the systems to kind of separate the two out. I, it wasn't a particularly scientific answer, but you have to be aware that there is a lot of noise. But within that noise, there are some nuggets you better not miss. Thank you for coming down. Um, so across all the different uh, companies you have worked across the globe, were there any practices uh, which a particular company in a country has followed which other companies across the globe can you know, learn from? Yeah, so um, I'll say negative and positive. Um, so you know, the United States holds American companies to a very high standard when it comes to the construct of bribery for all the right reasons. Um, but you go to many countries where a living wage is not paid to civil servants. So in the permitting process, the customs clearance process, et cetera, something called facilitating payments. Um, and so any company that I've worked for absolutely will not pay facilitating payments. But there are other countries who have competitors who are willing to pay, and therefore they're a little bit faster. They're able to do things a little bit better. Uh, and so we hold true to it. Um, but, you know, I had an opportunity one time to, to talk to uh, Secretary of State uh, Kerry about the fact that I don't think our State Department does enough to drive these markets at the root cause to pay their civil servants a living wage. So I would call that an example of the potential negative that, you know, we absolutely won't do it, even though it's out there and it's a best practice in some places. And it's seen as harmless, but uh, I don't think it is harmless in the long term. Um, in terms of, in terms of the, the, the good models that are out there, um, uh, I think that they're in Asia, and it may not be relevant as much in the United States, um, but the sense of loyalty to companies and sort of the sense of belonging in companies, et cetera, um, I think is just really powerful. Um, and it's, I think, why I very much enjoyed the, the culture, that sort of, and I think it's lost a little bit. I think Americans, and particularly the young people, have become cynical about their ability not only to even do better than their parents, uh, but to create personal wealth uh, of comfort level. Um, and so the U.S. has somehow disconnected um, and there are a lot of, I'm not trying to simplify, a very complex topic, but it's, I see it constantly that if I look at sort of the culture of the businesses that we have in Asia and the culture, and this isn't necessarily just UPS, just as an observation of talking to people, read the statistics on turnover and millennials want to leave every 18 months if you don't promote them and all of that. I just don't think it's particularly healthy for the long term of the economy. So I'd kind of like to see the, that more moderated Asian approach relative to how careers are built and, and create a little bit more in the U.S. So I'm sure there's 50 people who totally disagree with me. But anyway, I'm the one with the microphone, so it's okay. We have time for one more question. Anyone want to pose the last question? No pressure. It's 4.30. Anybody who hasn't they had a chance Christine. yet. Don't give it to Robert. <laughs> Maybe this will help the room. You've lived in a world of 
linear decisions circled around complexity. And the largest rewards are given to the individuals that can look around corners. And those individuals see those opportunities, but they don't always have a chance to present them to the right individuals. What words of wisdom would you offer this crowd to, one, have their voice heard in a linear, structured world? Um, you've done it again, Robert. I mean, good Lord. Do you know, I, look, I, the one thing that surprises me being back in the United States, having lived 25 years in Asia, I got used to hierarchical thinking because it's ingrained in the culture, in particular in North Asia. It blows me away even today that a younger in career person is like, ooh, sending someone an email that's three levels up. That's like career suicide. It's not. Um, and, and so, you know, to me, that's the advice I give people is that you get into these roles and you get disconnected. And despite all of your attempts to figure out what's going on, you can't know and see everything. In particular, younger people early in career, you know, don't wear out your welcome. But if you've got a really good idea you don't think's being heard, click it up three levels. And if you get penalized for it, you're in the wrong company. Because if you think that way and you want to be a part of the change, you need to find the environment that will reward it and accept it. And, and in some ways, that's why I've left companies, is I felt like I no longer had a voice. I was you know, being told, okay, grasshopper, sit over here until we're ready for you, and I wasn't gonna waste another five or six years and not feel like it was valued. And so that's really the key voice. It's not necessarily seeing around the corner, it's about what you're seeing and, and what you're experiencing. And if you think it is imperative, be willing to click up a few levels and, and not be weighed down by the hierarchy. And so I really appreciate it when I get emails. Sometimes they're shocked that I respond. Um, and not all of them are great ideas, but I, I love the culture that they're feeling confident enough and, and, and are able to communicate. The Darden Leadership Speaker Series is held on Darden Grounds in Charlottesville, Virginia, and events are open to the public. To learn more, visit us at darden.virginia.edu.